Welcome back to What Happens Next, the podcast that examines some of the biggest challenges facing our world and asks the experts what will happen if we don't change and what can we do to create a better future. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. Keep listening to find out what happens next. The 2022 federal election demonstrated that what matters to women voters shouldn't be ignored. With the Victorian election upon us, what have the major parties pledged for gender? Welcome to a special episode of What Happens Next. This is a recording of a live panel conversation as part of Monash University's Social Sciences Week. Hello, everyone. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to the Hear Her Raw event as part of Monash University's Social Sciences Week series. We're here today to discuss what Victorian political parties can do to end gender-based violence and progress gender equality and the commitments that they would like to see uh, that our expert panel would like to maybe like to see but also perhaps suggest to them uh, in the lead up to the Victorian election. So sharing their insights today are Dr Blair Williams, lecturer in the Australian Politics, Professor Jackie True, the Director of the Monash Gender Peace and Security Centre and a Professor of International Relations in the Faculty of Arts here at Monash, and Dr Siru Tan, who is Postdoctoral Research Fellow with the Monash Gender and Family Violence Prevention Centre. Ladies, welcome. Morning. So my question to, to kick off, the federal election did show us this year that what matters to women voters should matter to political parties. So what commitments to improve the lives of women would you like to see from political parties in the upcoming Victorian election? Jackie, I might start with you. Um, I'd like to see the Victorian government develop and commit to a wellbeing budget where they commit to analysing and uh, all new spending uh, and, and that all new spending should actually advance gender equality, um, but also other goals too related to that, I think that um, could, could be shared uh, across the whole, uh, the whole state. So things like, you know, reducing poverty, uh, reducing uh, family violence, um, you know, addressing uh, mental health. Um, uh, you know, crisis and so on. So I think that that, that wellbeing budget would kind of build on the, the commitment of the government to gender responsive budgeting, which is again, looking at the impact of, of spending or spending uh, on uh, diverse groups of men and women in the state. But I think a wellbeing budget would take it to a new level um, and uh, enable the, us uh, to, to think about core common goals and not just simply growing the economy, but actually, uh, improving the social uh, outcomes and benefits for all. Can I just clarify? So with your wellbeing budget suggestion, do you mean that the budget, the whole budget would always have gender equality as as every as something that informs every policy or every spending the government has? Or is it a separate thing that certain things would feed into? Yeah. So I think, you know, first of all, I should say that the idea of the wellbeing budget is, is a policy innovation that comes from New Zealand. Um, but it's also one that's being taken up in other countries, Scotland, Finland. Uh, there's a bit of a movement uh, of countries led by, you know, quite uh, uh, passionate women leaders uh, to promote this well-being economics. So what it does uh, and what New Zealand has done is said all new spending, in order to be approved by the cabinet, it must meet these criteria. So it must 
advance gender equality. It must reduce, uh, you know, poverty. It must also, for, for New Zealand, it's child poverty targets. Um, there's all, it also relates to mental health targets as well. So, uh, you know, I'd like to see the federal government, uh, Jim Chalmers has actually mentioned that the federal government might maybe looking at a wellbeing budget, but Victoria should be the first mover. Siru, what would you like to see from political parties? What the pandemic has also shown us is that women undertake much of the care responsibility in the home. And that's also where I would like to see um, commitment from the government to recognising and to addressing um, and to, I think, really, it's thinking about what are the measures that are necessary in order to help reduce or help alleviate some of the burdens that women carry, be it through um, better leave policies or through investment in industries where we no longer can say, oh, you know, women are less, so therefore they should stay at home and do all of this work. I think, um, especially in the childcare industries, I think, um, and elder care industries, where we see women taking up much of this care responsibilities, I think we need to see a more um, a more well structured, both in the immediate in, in the immediate sort of response to the crisis that we are currently having, and in the longer term as well, where we think about how can we have a structure in place that can allow women to go out and work without without being, you know, staying at home because there are. The, the structures are in place to allow them to do that. And that could include more investment in childcare facilities and elder care facilities that are affordable for women. Because I think a lot of the cases now, um, women are staying at home or that they're working primarily just to cover childcare expenses. And that's just not um, a good option for them. It can be extended. It definitely needs to be extended to elderly care um, where, you know, over the last few years, we have seen it just spiral. Um, and, you know, the, the risk that puts um, women in both at home and outside the home. So I think that's that's where I would like to see. <laughs> Blair, what would you like to see? The aged care stuff, child care stuff, very much agree. But also expand that to disability care as well, because that is an extremely underfunded area. Um, and it's something that I think kind of gets forgotten a little bit. Um, and, you know, it has really been struggling over the last few, few years because of COVID. So it'd be good to see um, not only the workers get, you know, I guess, cheaper um, education and training, but also better pay, obviously. Um, and personally, maybe, I don't know, it's pretty unfeasible, but I would love to see, um, I guess, a more nationalised uh, aged care, childcare and disability care kind of model rather than having a lot of privatisation, which only results in worse outcomes uh, for you know, the workers and for those who need this care. I also think it's important um, to look at, I guess, like the, the mass rise in, in, in um, uh, incarceration, incarceration of women that we've seen over the last few years. So I think it's more than doubled since the mid 2010s. Um, and as we know, a lot of women who go, you know, who, who are in prison um, are there usually because they've experienced some kind of trauma you know things like education social housing uh you know um better uh welfare rates all those things work to to minimize that so i guess i just believe in a bit of a less of a police state because i know victoria has a few challenges there we've seen a lot of discussions about women's safety in a whole host of areas the home on the streets 
at their workplaces everywhere. And recent studies have found that one in two Australian women will experience sexual harassment, one in three has experienced physical abuse, and one in five has experienced sexual abuse. What action and investment is required from governments to address this national emergency? Cyril, I'll ask you first. Be beyond a policing state. It's not just about, okay, we have these laws and these policies. Mm-hmm. We need to think about can women actually access them? Is it actually feasible? Is it actually practical for women to access those things? And that decision of whether to approach authorities or not, it's more than that immediate crisis or incident that's, you know, that incident of abuse or harassment. They need to think about the economic security. They need to think about, for, for migrant and refugee women, they need to think about visa security. Is it going to impact on, on their residency? Is it going to impact on on their right to a job here? And all of that, if that's not resolved, no matter how many laws or policies that we may have, the impact is going to be arguably minimal. Claire, what would you like to say? I guess I'm just so overwhelmed with how, um, you know, how much housing has increased and the, the unaffordability of that. And when you're looking at like infant partner violence, for example, I mean, how can you leave? How can you even think of leaving mm-hmm. when you can't find a rental? Like when you can't afford it, like when you can't afford one, let alone find one, vice versa. Um, I think that really troubles the situation. Like it's, it becomes impossible. Yeah. So I think, you know, to empower women to, to I guess, decrease violence as well not only do we have to obviously change cultural norms and the way we think about women um you know as part of a larger society and part of you know victoria as well um but we also need to you know i guess increase women's fun, um, economic security um so like, like jobs and education that we've been saying um as well as uh, access to housing i mean i guess it's the maslow's hierarchy of needs right you need to, like address those baseline things and that will have a flow-on effect um into into those other issues Jackie, how would you like to see the government try to address these staggering rates of harassment and abuse of women? We need to be much more focused on prevention Mm. of gender-based violence and violence against women and not just in the emergency room responding. Um, And I think one of the ways to do that is to make that connection that you've both already made to um, economic security and economic inequality, because obviously the gender power imbalance is one of the major drivers um, that, you know, that, uh, you know, really enables and empowers some men to, um, you know, to lash out or to ab- abuse women in various different ways. So I think that, you know, there has to be some room for more regulation in that area to kind of d- directly tackle the gender imbalances, as well, you know, indirectly tackle gender imbalances uh, in the workforce uh, in order to address, you know, some of those direct impacts in terms of abuse and harassment. Um, so I think that's really important. And maybe it relates to the earlier points about mainstreaming, not just gender equality across all policy areas, but mainstreaming the prevention of violence uh, and abuse across all policy areas and requiring um, some responsibilities there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be very important because as Siri uh, said, um, for, you know, in this sort of recovery from COVID, we're actually seeing all of the gender economic inequalities um, be exacerbated. What is your advice for non-researchers and non-politicians to influence <laughs> law reform on domestic violence and gender-based violence? So for the average punter out there. 
Well, don't think that all the ideas for law reform and, and policy change come from politicians. They don't. Politicians basically pick up the ideas, uh, you know, from others, especially from advocacy coalitions and groups uh, in communities that are pushing, you know, certain kinds of, um, you know, solutions. Um, and I think researchers obviously play a role in those co coalitions as well. So I think my best advice would be, you know, if there's an issue that you're passionate about, um, you know, it might, uh, then I think you need to join up with others, you know, and try to identify, you know, the, the group that is, um, you know, is, is, is also advocating for that issue uh, and be part of that group and bring your skills to that group um, and the networks that you have and the communities that you belong to, um, you know, enable their voices to be, to be part of that, of that solution. So I do think that, um, grassroots community initiatives can make a big difference. I think we've we've seen that in the recent federal election with the election of so many independent candidates who've been supported by their communities. Um, and I think um, the reforms that we probably will start to see uh, in the next year or two, these are reforms that have been um, part of social movements and advocacy coalitions for at least two or three decades. I think maybe it was you that said it, Siru, that not everything needs to be policy. What, what advice would you give for the average person that just wants to improve things in this area? I think, I think it's interesting to think about law reform because often I think in criminology, one, one, what the question would be, is it the public that influences law reform or is it law that influences public norms? And I think often, I think when we think about some things, for example, um, the one thing that comes to mind is the same-sex marriage, for example. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not actually law reform that pushed a cultural change or in, in norms it was in fact the other way around and this is where I think the average person um has a lot of power and I think also sort of building on that it's um mm. even at, we, not just politicians as researchers we are entirely we're very much dependent on the public and on industry so I think in your everyday I think I definitely echo what Jackie has said about your everyday practice um, and you perhaps um, standing up to your family when someone says something that's a bit out of line, saying that, you know, that's not quite right, you know, this is what I've read, you know, sort of doing that in your everyday actually has an impact. And that's, that is, I think, the sort of everyday um, minor things, small things that, that gradually then builds up to change. I think grassroots organization is so crucial. I mean, any gains we've really that we've won have been grassroots based. Like that's pushing policy. That's pushing politicians. I wish politicians bloody acted on their own. No way. Uh, <laughs> a lot of the time it's grassroots organization. Like we saw it with the March for Justice, for example. I was there. It was fantastic. I helped organize it. It was a fantastic day. But then afterwards you're like, oh, where, where did that go? But then you see it come back, you know, before the election. And women are like, I have not forgotten my anger. I'm still angry. And, and I think you see, you know, a lot of that coming from the, the community and coming from ordinary people every day. And it's not just women who are there um, or who think this stuff. But I guess finding that solidarity, you know, finding those people that um, you could talk about this stuff with and, and educating others that don't know much about it. So I think educating your friends, your family, you know, that is really important that you can do every day based on the stuff that you've read, based on this, you know, the academic stuff that we get out in the media, or I think it all, you know, relates um, with each other um, to create, I guess, powerful movements. But yeah, I mean, you look at 
like gender equality policies over the years and it's always been grassroots feminist movements pushing that you know like for example um women's refuges didn't exist until grassroots feminists created it in the 70s um a lot of the stuff we have now i mean you know the duty unions or feminist movements or like queer movements you were saying um with marriage equality uh i think that the like the people are powerful and the people should use their power to to make that change and yes it's as you said it's you know kind of slow uh you know it um it doesn't happen in an instant but it does create for that i think bigger and lasting change because it's not just top down politicians telling us how to do or law reforms telling us how to do but it's changing the cultural norms of our society in terms of increasing male representation in female dominating industries what checks and balances are needed to ensure they don't then dominate the upper levels of these industries? So if we, like you suggested, let's get more men into early childhood education, how do we then stop them just becoming the CEOs of those companies and the women still being down the bottom? Yeah, yeah I was going to say I, that that's a really uh, fascinating comment because what's so surprising is when, like, just take, for example, education um, at all levels, we see, despite the fact that it's 80% female dominated, the leaders, the majority of them are men. So um, I think uh, it's a problem that we have. Um, so, you know, maybe, you know, no one measure is, is sufficient, right? Um, I think that we do need to promote a pipeline of young women leaders, diverse young women leaders, and that should be really important in every sector uh, in every organisation um, to sort of counteract. And also our expectations in the community should matter too. Like how we um, perceive and support women leaders and diverse women leaders is really important and who we vote for is important as well. Do either of you have any recommendations for how can we get men into these female-dominated industries but then stop just the pipeline of them being shunted to the top? There are two interesting things about this. Um, one is uh, the glass escalator. So this is what the situation is. It's a glass escalator, kind of like the glass ceiling for women that, you know, it's this like invisible barrier. The glass escalator is where men like get risen to the top. They go into female industries and they get on this glass escalator and they, you know, um, much like they just go into those um, leadership positions or I guess even just better paid positions, which is. Different. I've never heard that expression. That's a great one. Glass oh. escalator. Nice. Because it's a trend. It's a systemic thing. It's not just Australia. Like, this is being seen in many countries over the world. Mm -hmm. um, and the second thing I find interesting is that when an industry becomes more female-dominated, it loses its respect and uh, it is less paid. Like, it's paid less uh, oh. less well. Um, so, I mean, I think we're kind of seeing that with academia a little bit as well compared to, the I guess, the prestige it had back in the day. Now it's like being criticised and less paid. I guess, I mean, we need to try and combat the idea that a female-dominated industry is worthless because that is just ridiculous. Um, and we need to, um, I guess, I mean, change cultural norms so that men can see themselves doing these kinds of roles and they don't get shamed out of it. Like women get shamed out of joining male-dominated industries. Um, and we need to make it more, I guess, improve the working conditions. And not, that's not just not for men, that's for everyone in those industries. But I think that will also encourage more diverse people yeah. entering it. All right, last question uh, for this amazing panel. If we're tr who should we be approaching to try to um, change family law when there's allegedly corruption in the very institutions that are meant to represent and protect domestic violence victims? Um, should, they, should these people be approaching the Attorney General? Is it the government? What do we do? This is such a good question because I've been sitting on it for the last couple of years, you know, with all the scandals and all yep. that. And I've been asking, I'm just like, 
who who can we trust yeah. when the very people that are meant to protect our interests cannot be trusted to do so? I think it is a really good question because it it can, you know, from people watching from the outside, they can think, well, what do we do? We're, like, how are we supposed to enact change when it feels like the very people who are there to make this change happen are deeply invested in keeping it the same? Is there a way around it? I think um, this is definitely a question that's beyond Victoria, <laughs> but I think there can be steps that's taken within Victoria. This is, this is such a political question, I would say, yeah. <laughs> because, like, I think um, the steps towards anti-corruption commission it's 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 I think it's definitely a positive step forward to have an external body that sits outside of the government to be overseeing what's happening there and not allowing for example a person in power to say oh you know to make sure that person is not guilty and I think when corruption is so obvious to all of us um yeah and I think Victoria has the capacity to do Mm -hmm. so because I mean to say that Victoria is free of corruption would be a, a very big claim but having I think an anti-corruption body would be a very good start, I'd say. And investigating, um, in a way, again, I think there are limits to what the steps could do. But at the same time, it does flag to the people that, you know, we are serious about this. It's not just lip service. Yeah, it's such a difficult question. Such a, it, <laughs> Why don't we also just recommend to this person to go to their local member of parliament and representative mm. and actually you know bring their concerns about uh the family law system to, to them so because if your rep your political representatives don't know about the corruption and the problems they can't actually you know raise those in the broader uh you know rep, you know legislature or that they can't actually tackle them so you have to use those mechanisms that we have in a democracy um, to have your voice heard um, and again, I think, you know, yours is just one voice, but if you go through your representative, you may find that there are others who have similar concerns. Mm. Um, and you may find, you know, also a, a group which you can, you know, be part of, which can kind of bring those broader concerns, um, you know, to, to those who represent us. I think also I wonder if it, we could consider using the media to help us in those regards, mm-hmm. going outside that system. And one thing that has been positive to see is I think, I mean, obviously there's problems in the media, but there are certain sections of the media that seem very committed to making sure gender-based violence is absolutely part of the the national conversation and and calling people to be aware of it and calling people in power to account for it. So we do still have outside groups that will hold corrupt governments to account that I think we could use to our advantage. But I think we need to, you know, radically... um, reform this system and that needs I guess I'm not a legal person but you know they need to listen to the the feminist legal academics in this I mean whether we can do this or not I mean I I think it's more of a choice or you know the the will Um, but it's something that definitely needs to happen because we are seeing horrific um, instances in the family law courts uh, you know whether it's children not having agency of their own lives and being forced to live with their abusers um, or women who have their um, you know their own violence used against them to show that they're an unfit parent like horrific horrific stories you know time and time again so I think yeah the the courts need to be reformed on their you know in in that in itself and I think um as you said the media are doing some fantastic things so I know a lot about this um and those you know the cases that we're seeing because the media has covered this I think the ABC recently did a really good series on this um and I think we need to see more of that more like highlighting what is actually happening um and I think that can help 
hold things to account to, to have the impetus for change. All right, well, we are out of time. So a big thank you to our panellists for sharing their insights with us today. What an amazing bunch of women. Maybe we'll see you again next year for SSW. Let's hope these issues and more are of high priority for the major parties in the future. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Blair Williams, Dr. Siru Tan and Professor Jackie True. You can find out more information on this topic and our guests in the show notes. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next week as we unpack a brand new topic on what happens next. 